Now, uh, church, we want to begin this morning by uh, telling you a story that I heard on the radio the other day, and I want you to tell me what was wrong with this story, okay? What's off about this story? A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to the story that was describing the back and forth rhetoric that was taking place between two candidates who were embroiled in a, a divisive political race, okay? And one of the candidates who claimed to be a person of faith was describing the hypocrisy that he saw in his opponent's policies and practices. And he said, speaking of his opponent, that he ought to take the log out of his eye before he looks at the speck in my eye. Now, what's wrong with that story? Someone unmute your microphone and and tell me, what's wrong with that story? What's off about it? Well, I have no idea what that means, Jim. Explain it in English for me. <laughs> he has made a statement contradicting the very statement he went to make. Okay, excellent. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, this is the exact opposite meaning of what the log and the speck teaching in the Bible is all about, isn't it? When Jesus teaches his disciples about not judging others in the Sermon on the Mount... The point that he is making is that we should always consider our own faults first, right? We are always the ones with the log in our eye, not the other person. Yet here, this candidate was suggesting that that he had only a speck in his eye, and his opponent had a log in his eye. He was literally using Jesus' teaching about not judging others to judge others. The very thing that the teaching was speaking against, this candidate was using the scriptures to do. And what was ultimately going on in this interview was that the candidate was allowing his politics to shape and form his faith, rather than allowing his professed faith to shape and form his politics. For while he should have allowed God's word to shape and form how he thought about issues and people, he was allowing issues and people to shape and form how he used God's word. And whether he realized it or not, and he probably didn't, he ended up slandering his opponent in the name of Jesus and marring his Christian witness to the listening world. And if we're not careful, we can all make the same kinds of mistakes. In her book entitled The Liturgy of Politics, author Caitlin Scheiss argues that for too long the church hasn't sufficiently examined the state of our hearts and the power of the political stories that we have taken for granted. She says that we don't recognize the ways that we are shaped and formed as disciples by the political media we consume and the political habits that we practice, and that ultimately that shaping is not content to stay in the political realm, but inevitably it will influence us spiritually as well. And as has happened in this example, it will reflect poorly on us as Christians and will hinder our witness in the world. And that's why two weeks ago we began this sermon series entitled The Politics of the Kingdom. 
that we're going to be in between now and the upcoming elections on November the 3rd. And in this series, we're going to be looking at some of the values and, and policies, if you will, of the kingdom of God as we find them in the scriptures. And we're going to consider how, as followers of Jesus, those kingdom values should work their way into our political imagination and engagement in this world so that ultimately we are having our faith shape our politics rather than the other way around. And if you missed the previous sermons in this series, I would encourage you to go online and and to listen to those, particularly the first one, as it really lays the foundation for for why we're doing what we're doing and the importance and significance of it. This week, uh, we're looking at the value of the kingdom of God that I believe, uh, next to the gospel itself, may be the closest issue to the heart of God and to the life of Jesus that we see in all of the scriptures. And as a result, I believe that it must be a value that is present in God's people as well. It's the value of the care for the poor. That the kingdom of God is a kingdom that cares for the poor. In fact, the kingdom of God is so concerned for the well-being of the poor that in his very first sermon, the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus first comes onto the scene as an adult in the life of his ministry, and he announces the arrival of the kingdom of God in his presence on earth, when he says that the promises of the kingdom are being fulfilled in him, Jesus describes the kingdom's arrival as good news for the poor. It's almost like a political slogan for it. When the coming of the kingdom of God is proclaimed, It is good news for the poor. And so this morning, I want us to consider two questions. First, why is the kingdom of God good news for the poor? And second, would the poor say the same thing about the world that Christians are seeking to build through their social and political involvement here on earth today? Okay? So first, why is the message of the kingdom of God good news for the poor? Two points that I want to make to answer that question, and they are this, that in the kingdom of God, the poor's care is always considered, and their value is always verified. Okay, Their their care is always considered, and their value is always verified. So first, in the kingdom of God, the poor's care is always considered. What we see when we read the scriptures is that the call to care for the poor was a central theme throughout the entire history of the kingdom of God. It's a value that's been taught and proclaimed in both Israel and the church from the very beginning to the very end of the age. In the Old Testament, the care for the poor was legislated by the law. In Leviticus chapter 19, which deals with how God's people were to treat one another, the law says that when you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather its gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. In the Old Testament law, God makes provision for the poor by forbidding landowners from hoarding all of their harvest for themselves and and scraping every penny's worth of value out of their fields. Instead, they were required to leave some of what they produced as provision for the poor in the land. 
This provided work for the poor to do as they gathered up what remained of the harvest. It provided resource and sustenance for them to eat and to survive. In the nation of Israel, there was never to be a concern about what the poor would eat or how they would survive. Their care was codified into the law. And the laws that were given weren't just about the provision of food. There are Old Testament laws in Leviticus that make provision for the the forgiveness of debt and fair lending of money against the prohibition of reaping excessive profits in business dealings. And then there are other laws that are intended to protect and provide for the well-being of the poor in the land. And all of those laws reached their pinnacle in the laws of Jubilee, which required that every 50 years all debts be forgiven, all property be returned to the original families that owned them, It was the ultimate redistribution of wealth. And although there is no evidence that the Jubilee laws were ever actually followed by the people, still they were given by God to ensure that there was no such thing as generational poverty among his people and that every tribe and clan in Israel always had a secure future and a hope in the land through God's provision for them. In the Old Testament, The care for the poor was legislated by the law. In the New Testament, the care for the poor is is given as a response of our grace. When the people of God no longer lived under the law, and the requirements of the law had been fulfilled in Jesus, still the care for the poor was a value that was prominent among God's people. In fact, the expectation for the care and well-being of the poor was actually heightened under the system of grace. The expectation is that the poor would receive even more care and better care from those who had experienced the grace of God than from those who hadn't. Because the level of care was no longer determined by the standard of the law, but it was given from the generosity of a transformed heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, when Paul was encouraging the church to give generously to the needs of the poor in the midst of a famine, he said that the act of giving to those in need was a sign of a sign of the genuineness of their faith and love. If they knew that they had received much, they should want to give much. And so Paul encouraged the church to give generously and joyfully, and he reminds them that they had been blessed in order to be a blessing. This is the spirit throughout the New Testament. That giving to the poor isn't required by law, but it's a desire of a transformed heart. And it's a response of the gift of grace. And it's fascinating to note that in in Deuteronomy chapter 15, Moses told the people of God that if they followed God's laws, particularly as they related to to the Jubilee, that there would be no poor among them. And while that was never accomplished in the life of Israel, In the early church, we actually see a picture of it. In Acts chapter 4, after the Spirit of God had come and transformed the hearts of God's people and indwelt them with His presence, we're told that a generosity broke out in the church where no one considered any of the things that belonged to them as their own. And they shared everything that they had in common with one another. And the description that we're given of that community was that there was not a needy person among them. God's people, living God's way, brought complete and total care for the poor. Now, this doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of all of the ways that the Scriptures, from beginning to end, acknowledge that God cares for the poor and exhorts for His people too as well. In the kingdom of God, the poor's care is always considered. 
That, that is the good news for the poor. And secondly, the other reason why the presence of the kingdom of God is good news for the poor is because in the kingdom of God, their value is always verified. We see this throughout the life of Jesus, whose ministry was primarily among the poor and the sick and the outcast and the downtrodden and the marginalized. We see him honoring the gift of the widow's offering at the temple over the gifts of the rich, acknowledging that her two little copper coins were more valuable than all of their contributions combined. For the others had given out of their abundance, but she had given what she depended upon. Jesus lifts her up and he honors her, values her. We see him honor and elevate the poor prostitute who who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair as he corrects and rebukes at the same time the wealthy Pharisee who had condemned her for doing so. He elevates the prostitute's status while lowering the status of the Pharisee. We see him stop while he's on his way to heal the daughter of a prominent military figure in order to heal the impoverished woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He shows that the needs of the prominent weren't more important than the needs of the impoverished to him. Over and over and over again throughout his life and ministry, Jesus challenged the rich and uplifted the poor. And in doing so, his ultimate point was this, that we're all equal in the eyes of the Lord. Whether we realize it or not, there's no real difference between the rich and the poor. We're all impoverished. We all need help. And Jesus gives it to us equally. It's like James says that the lower brother should boast in his exaltation and the rich brother should boast in his humiliation, right? That the poor need to know that they are loved and valued because that's not a message that they hear very often. And so Jesus told them that they were. He lifted them up. And the rich need to know their desperate need for help because that's not a reality that they experience very often. And so Jesus told them of their need over and over again. He brought them down. And so as the poor are lifted up and encouraged in in exhortation and the rich are brought down in humility and, and in warnings, there's a great leveling that occurs. And ultimately the point is this, that we're all the same before the cross. There aren't, the poor aren't any worse off in the presence of the Lord. The rich don't have any benefits because of their riches. The foot of the cross is level ground for every human being. We're all equally loved and we're all equally in need. In light of the cross, the rich and the poor are exactly the same. It's the great leveler. G.K. Chesterton The famous British writer and philosopher and and lay theologian said this about the fact that the rich and the poor are ultimately the same. He said that people are equal in the same way that pennies are equal. (laughs) Some are bright, others are dull. Some are worn smooth, others are sharp and fresh. But all are equal in value. For each penny bears the image of the sovereign. And each person bears the image of the King of Kings. Our lives may not all look the same, and we may not have been through the same things in life. We may not all have received the same benefits or faced the same challenges, but before the face of God, we are all equally loved and valued because we all bear the image of our Creator. Jesus always verified the value of the poor. He made them realize that they mattered. The presence of the kingdom of God was always good news for the poor. 
because its coming and its arrival gave the hope that they would no longer remain impoverished and that they would no longer remain unnoticed, but that they would be provided for and that they would be valued for what they are truly worth by God through his people. This is why the proclamation of the kingdom of God is good news for the poor. And so the second question that I would challenge us to consider this morning is, would the poor say the same thing about the church and about the social and political engagement of Christians today? Is what we are doing for the poor today good news for them? Do you think the poor would feel cared for, shared with, valued as equals in the church or in the world that we're seeking to build? When we think about our engagement in in social and political issues that affect the poor, are, are we being primarily informed in our decisions by the Word of God and the values of His kingdom and by transformed hearts? Or are we being shaped and formed by the values of this world and the political ideologies of the right or the left? When we think about issues uh, that, that like uh, unemployment benefits, uh, a living minimum wage, taxes and the redistribution of wealth, welfare measures that create a social safety net, accessibility to things like affordable housing and quality health care and public transportation and other issues that affect the poor. What is influencing how we think about these things? If you were to humble yourself and view yourself as equal with the poor, which you are, Would you be satisfied receiving the care that you've been advocating for on their behalf? It's an interesting and and a convicting question to wrestle with. Now, please hear me. I want to be very careful and clear to say each and every week in this series that my goal in this is not to tell you how to think about or vote on particular issues or candidates or parties we live in a complicated world, and I don't think there are easy answers to most of this. I believe that as Christians, we have the freedom to come to differing decisions about the best way forward on these issues. So I'm not trying to tell you what to do in regards to specific policies and how this all plays itself out. But what I do want you to be aware of is that the values of our faith are intricately intertwined with the issues of this world. That we can't act like they are separate and operate as if they are separate. For they inevitably have an impact on one another. And so what I want to challenge you to do is to pay attention to whether or not your faith is informing your politics on these types of issues. Or whether your political convictions are co-opting your faith values. I want you to consider which is primary in your life. Which is forming you as a disciple. That's what we're really after here. Because what is clear, what is undeniable, is that God's heart for the is God's heart for the care and the valuing of the poor. What's not debatable is that God's kingdom, which which we proclaim and acknowledge our allegiance to and pray for the arrival of, what's not debatable is that that kingdom is good news for the poor. This is the very heart of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, though he was rich yet for our sake became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. For you see, ultimately, we have to care for the poor because we are the poor. The reason that Jesus came into the world is because we're all impoverished. We're all in desperate need. Not one of us has the resource in ourselves to sustain life. We're all perishing in the poverty of our spirit 
and of this world. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus loved us so much that he hasn't left us in our impoverished state, but he left the riches of heaven, came to earth, and took our poverty upon himself. He took our moral depravity and our physical brokenness into his body. Upon the cross, he put it all to death. And rising again to life on the third day, and Jesus offers to those who had been impoverished by sin the inheritance of the kingdom of God. He gives to those who knew and know that they have nothing the gift of absolutely everything. This is what we believe. This is what we have received. This is what we must continue to proclaim and to share and to seek for others as well. Church, the message of the kingdom of God is good news for the poor. Will we seek to bring that good news in any way that we can to all who need to hear it? Will we share that good news, not just in word, but in deed, working for this world to reflect the goodness of God's kingdom in every way that it can? Will we care for the needs of the poor and value their lives in ways that reflect God's heart for them? When God's people live God's ways, it's good news for the poor in the land. Their needs are cared for and their lives are valued. These are the politics of the kingdom of God. May they be the the political values in our lives as well, to the glory of God and to the good of his people. Amen.